Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at newgarden.church online. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week 46 in our series, Long Story Short. We've been taking this whole year to read through the Bible and we are nearing the end. We only have six weeks left. We have read through the Gospels and now we are in the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church and the spread of the kingdom of God. And it kicks off with an explosion of growth in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, where Peter stands up and he explains what God has been up to in fulfilling all the promises of the covenant through Jesus. Those listening to Peter respond, and it says in verse 41, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now there's more in this verse than we can tackle today, but I want to highlight two aspects that have, been, have become sacraments in the Christian worship to this day, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now baptism has been a source of debate for centuries among followers of Jesus. So what does the Bible have to say about baptism? What's the meaning of baptism in the Bible? To get a better understanding of the word baptism in the Bible, we need to trace a design pattern that runs throughout the whole Bible. Design patterns are repeated images, ideas, or events that weave through the different stories in the biblical story. They are the main way that the biblical authors unify the hundreds of stories in the Bible. And every pattern develops a core theme that leads to Jesus. Now, the design pattern that we're going to trace here is the pattern of God providing salvation for his people through the waters. Now, this theme of salvation through the waters leads up to the stories of Jesus' baptism and the development of baptism in early Christianity. But we need to start at the beginning. That's right. Turn your Bible to page 1. In the first chapter in Genesis, it gives us a fundamental portrait of the world. God brings order from chaos by these acts of separating. On page 1 of the Hebrew Bible, God's Spirit is hovering over the dark cosmic waters of wild and waste, or in the Hebrew, tohu vavohu, which is translated formless and empty. And we interpret that in this state, it's going to make life and human communities impossible. So God separates the chaotic waters, and He creates a space where life can flourish. God's work begins with multiple acts of separating. He separates the light from the darkness the waters above from the waters below, and the seas from the dry land by gathering the waters together. Dry land, including Eden, emerges from the chaotic waters. And by bringing the place of life up out of these chaotic waters, God brings humanity into a new world. But in Genesis 3, humanity unleashes chaos back into the world. And what we begin to see is a replaying of the pattern of God separating the waters. However, instead of creating order through acts of separating, we now see God rescuing a remnant to pass through the waters. This remnant will now emerge out the other side to inhabit a new creation. The pattern begins with God's purpose, but once humanity disrupts this purpose, the pattern becomes an act of rescue. The pattern 
of God providing salvation for his people through the waters reappears with the chaotic waters of the flood narrative in Genesis 6 through 8. The flood is presented as a state of decreation. The springs of the cosmic deep water split and the windows of the heavens are opened, reversing days two and three of creation. Every being is wiped away from the face of the earth, undoing all the inhabitants from days five and six of creation. But God remembers Noah and he rescues a remnant, Noah and his family, through the waters. Noah and his family are saved through the chaotic waters, and they step into dry land to begin a humanity 2.0 in this new creation. Now, we see this pattern again in one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we are introduced to Moses, who is delivered through the waters of death in an ark and into the house of Pharaoh. Later in the narrative, God remembers his covenant with the family of Abraham and appoints Moses to deliver Israel, his son, out of slavery in Egypt. God saves his chosen people from Egypt by leading them through the waters of the Reed Sea and onto dry land. The Israelites are delivered from slavery and death through the waters and to Mount Sinai, where they're invited to become God's representatives to the nations. Now, the pattern picks up again 40 years later after the Exodus. The Israelites have wandered in the desert, and now this new generation is preparing to enter the Promised Land. The Israelites spend the night at the Jordan River before finally entering the land. Even though the Israelites are not in danger, we still see the salvation template or this pattern playing out. God brings the people out of the wilderness, and they, once again, cross through the waters to the place that God has prepared for them. The priests are instructed to carry the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River. As the priestly representatives, they enter into the waters first, and what is true of them becomes true of the rest of who follow. As the priests' feet touch the river, the waters of the Jordan stood in a single heap, and the Israelites crossed the river on dry ground. Just as Israel was led by Moses through the Reed Sea in Exodus, the second generation of Israel does the same thing at the Jordan River under Joshua's leadership. It's a second Exodus. Isaiah, the prophet, also uses the metaphor of life emerging from chaotic waters, but he does so in a way that links this imagery to a future rescue from the exile by a messianic king. Years later in Israel's story, after failed monarchs and divided kingdoms, the prophet Isaiah spoke of a future promise in the midst of destruction and exile. He said that there would come a day when a new king from David's line would be endowed by the Spirit to bring justice to the poor. And the pattern picks up in verse 10 where we read, Then on that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal flag for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. The image is of a king from the line of David, the Messiah, a root that is somehow standing and to whom all the nations are moving toward. The pattern emerges further in the following verses, where vocabulary from the Exodus and the flood narratives reappears. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover with his hand the second time the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a flag for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel. And he will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel. 
on that day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord using his hand is a phrase seen earlier to describe God's use of his power on behalf of Israel, particularly during the Exodus story. Isaiah is alluding to a new exodus and a new remnant. The word remnant recalls the story of Noah. Noah and his family are the rescued remnant floating among the chaotic waters. Similarly, the Israelites in exile are a remnant that is floating out in the sea of Assyria and Egypt and the islands of the sea and all these nations. All these nations are like the chaotic waters. And the, the concept of waters actually becomes a metaphor for enemies throughout the Bible. The biblical echoes of rescue through the water continue in the book of Isaiah. God will use his arm, like in the Exodus, to lift up a banner to the nations, the king from the line of David. And the remnant will come from among the nations, passing through the waters. And there will be safe passageway for the remnant, just like there was for Israel on the day they came up from the land of Egypt. Isaiah is using this story as an analogous way to say that God will rescue his scattered nation of Israel from the chaotic waters of exile among the nations. The remnant will be rescued from exile and they will sing a new song of salvation, which sets the stage for what happens in the New Testament, where the pattern of salvation through the waters begins with a man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a prophet who fulfills the prophetic announcement of Israel's restoration. And we're told that John is proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, calling for repentance and baptizing Israelites from Jerusalem and the surrounding regions in the Jordan River. Now, this is a very intentional prophetic act. John is having the people pass through the waters to renew their commitment to the God of Israel just as the Israelites were led through the waters of the Jordan under Joshua's leadership. The people were once again going through the waters of the Jordan with another prophetic leader and ushering in the fulfillment of Israel's new restoration and deliverance. It's another replaying of the Exodus. Now, as they pass through the waters, they repent of Israel's faithlessness and their covenantal compromise, and they prepare to be a new Israel that God is going to form when the promised Messiah arrives. That's when Jesus enters the scene. Each gospel account highlights the story of Jesus going down to the Jordan River to be baptized. In Jesus's baptism, he goes into the waters and back out again. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. Immediately, the pattern re-emerges through Mark's language of in the Jordan, alluding to the story in Joshua. Out of the water echoes back to the pattern of through the waters. The heavens are open or split open, referring back to the acts of separation at creation and the floodgates of the skies opening in the story of Noah. The spirit, like a dove, descending upon Jesus again, pointing back to the spirit hovering over the waters at creation and Noah sending out the dove after the flood. And God's words to Jesus, you are my beloved son, echo his words to Moses in reference to the Israelites. This isn't at all accidental. The biblical authors are continuing to weave key threads and theological themes together that are developed from the beginning of the story to its end. God announces that Jesus is his son who will rescue the world from the chaos of human evil and violence by going into death and out the other side. 
This is why baptism became such a big deal for Jesus' followers. The New Testament authors understood the meaning of baptism against the background of these major redemptive historical events in the Hebrew Bible. Paul links baptism with the Exodus story in 1 Corinthians 10, and Peter refers to Noah and his family being brought safely through water in the ark, connecting this to baptism in 1 Peter 3. Baptism in the Bible expresses an identification with Christ's death and resurrection. The old self was crucified with Christ through the waters of death, and now followers of Jesus have risen with him in newness of life. So the meaning of baptism is about participating in this ancient biblical pattern of going through the waters of death and following Jesus out the other side and into new creation. And part of meeting Jesus in this new creation is meeting him at a table, which commemorates his death, burial, and resurrection. So let's talk a minute about the table. Now for centuries, followers of Jesus have met together to partake in a meal commonly referred to as the Lord's Supper. Some refer to it as communion or maybe the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word, which means to give thanks. But why a meal? And why this meal? And what is the point? The Lord's Supper is an invitation into life. And it's an invitation that begins in the early pages of the Bible. That's right, turn back to page one. In the first pages of Genesis, God invites humanity to a meal. God appoints humanity to be his representatives and invites them to use their own creative power and imagination to spread the order and the beauty of the garden temple to the rest of creation. In the garden where humanity is placed, there are trees loaded with fruit for eating and cultivating, and the tree of life grows in the middle of this garden. This tree is an image of God's ultimate gift to creation, the opportunity to share and receive God's own goodness and life. Proximity to the tree means proximity to the author of life. And significantly, the tree of life is something meant for humanity to eat and consume. In fact, God's first command is for humans to eat from all the trees, including this one. This is an invitation to ingest God's own life. This meal transforms the one who eats it. And in the words of the story, it leads to eternal life. Humanity is invited to trust and participate in the life and wisdom that God freely offers by receiving and eating this meal. However, humans forfeit access to this meal by choosing to define goodness and life on their own terms, and they're exiled from the garden. How will they get back to the goodness on God's terms, which is symbolically represented by this tree of life? Well, as the story goes on, God continues to invite humanity to experience his life through meals. As God rescues the Israelites from Egypt, he invites them to become a kingdom of priests and live and serve as his covenant partners. This partnership will force them to make a choice. Will they define goodness in life on their own terms, or will they receive true life that God offers? God establishes a cycle of feasts for them to observe throughout the year, creating habits and practices that structure Israel's life together in at least two ways. First, these formative meals serve as a way to regularly participate in praise, thanksgiving, remembrance, and repentance. Through years of practice, the feasts help to form the people of Israel into a grateful, believing, trusting community who share in God's goodness and life. Second, God intends for these meals to continually remind people of the covenant he established with them. And much more than a mere like, mental reminder, these feasts engage each of the human senses, taste and sound and smell and touch and sight 
in order to help the whole person remember to stay faithful to the covenant promises made by God, who alone gives true life. But the Israelites are unfaithful to the covenant. They continually choose false trees of life that lead to self-destruction, exile, and death. And during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore the broken covenant in spite of Israel's failure. The prophets called this the new covenant. And God promised that there would come a day when he would gather the nations to himself and fulfill his covenant promises. And guess what he would do? He'd invite them to a meal. And they'd enjoy this meal in his presence, feasting once again on true life. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we see this theme continue. Jesus invites people to a meal, but it's not the type of feast they were expecting. Around the time of Passover, the feast that retells the Exodus story with this symbolic meal of lamb and unleavened bread and wine, Jesus miraculously provides food for a crowd of thousands. This results in people asking him for more bread. And Jesus responds by saying that he is the true bread and that if they eat from him, they will discover eternal life. This invitation to eat from him is an invitation to trust him and be transformed by his life. Later on, Jesus claimed to be the vine that brings God's life into the world. He says that his disciples are those who abide or remain in him, like branches connected to a vine. And this abiding will permeate a person's life, healing and transforming and making them new. Jesus is offering himself as a new tree of life. Now, on the evening before his death, Jesus observes a Passover meal with his disciples. And at this meal, Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. And then he takes a cup of wine, he gives thanks, and he offers it to his disciples. He again connects the bread to his body and the wine to his blood. And he invites his disciples to eat and drink in remembrance of him. And in this remembering and giving thanks, is an invitation to receive life, just like eating of the tree of life. At this meal, Jesus introduces a new covenant. Through this covenant, God's eternal life would be made available once again, but this time it would come through Jesus. Jesus was later led to a top of a hill where Roman soldiers killed him on a different kind of tree, a wooden cross. There they broke his body and poured out his blood, thinking they could destroy him with their tree of death but they underestimated Jesus. They tried to take his life, but they did not realize that Jesus willfully gave it, like giving a sacrificial lamb, in order to cover the sins of the entire world. Rather than fighting against his enemies or protecting himself, he goes through death and is resurrected three days later. This is a new kind of sacrificial lamb that was slain for a new kind of covenant. And now, Jesus presents us with a new choice between life or death. A new tree of life stands before us all. We can eat and drink from it, but it will mean humbly passing through death like Jesus, allowing our old fighting and protecting way of being human to die. And it will also mean taking hold of true life, of faithful love towards all. Living in Jesus' way of life means embracing God's new covenant. And this new covenant is remembered and celebrated with a new kind of covenant meal. Followers of Jesus, Take part in the Lord's Supper regularly to remember and participate in the power of Jesus' life. The bread and the cup celebrate a new covenant to connect us with a new life source. The power that, br that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can heal the corruption and the false trees in our own lives, transforming us into people of truth, beauty, and goodness. This meal invites us to remember 
Jesus. It represents to the senses, just like the meals God established for the Israelites, the life and death of Jesus. This meal is not something we do for Jesus. Rather, it reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. And it becomes something we do with Jesus. We participate with him in it. In the early pages of Genesis, humanity is invited to a meal that gives life. Then throughout the Bible, meals instructed by God both mark the covenant promises he makes with his people and invite his people to never forget his love and his faithfulness towards them. They are to remember the fact that he alone is their true source of life. And in the final pages of the biblical story, humanity is invited to another meal. The ongoing and repeated participation in the Lord's Supper reminds us that, wonderful as it is, this is not the final meal that Jesus has prepared for us. When he returns, Jesus will gather his people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and they will once again have access to the tree of life. He will bring them to the meal that he has prepared for them, and they will enjoy an eternally life-giving meal in his presence. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the life and work of Jesus, and it marks us as the people of his new covenant. And while doing all of this, it also anticipates that final glorious meal. The meal serves as a taste of what is to come, a taste of true life. And as we practice this new covenant meal, may it stir within us hope for his return and thankfulness for who he is and what he has done. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us and we'll be back with another episode again next week.